report to you uh, about that at the end of the service. <clears throat> so it'll go around for the next few weeks. The banquet is 17th, I think, Saturday the 17th. And then uh, Genesis chapter 1 <clears throat> is where we will begin um, in Sunday school this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have in your wisdom and grace explained to us uh, who you are and who we are and our role and place and purpose in this world. And I pray that you would help us as your people to live and walk carefully and cautiously as believers and not influenced primarily by the age in which we live and the culture in which we inhabit. And so we pray for your grace. We ask for your understanding, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so with reference to Sunday school, we're just returning to the early part of Genesis to um, just to, to go back and recover basic fundamental truth. I don't really have now my intention to try and uh, say things that we don't know, but just to remind us of them and uh, the influence that they are supposed to wield uh, of course, our country, our world in general, and our country um, in particular seems to be making a race away from God and biblical truth as quickly as is possible. And so <clears throat> uh, this is not entirely a bad thing um, in that it is going to provide God's people with an opportunity to be the light that they had always been called to. Um, but it will not necessarily be an easy thing for the people of the Lord. So, in any event, <clears throat> we've talked about the fact that God has created the world, that it is his. This is fundamental orientation to us. It really is kind of in the <clears throat> no-brain uh, realm, I think, um, although we live in a world that is very comfortable, increasingly comfortable, with the idea of having evolved from a gigantic explosion 13.7 billion years ago, and here we are, that part of the creation was mankind, <clears throat> and that God had a purpose for mankind. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the fact that in creating mankind, God created two genders. Um, <clears throat> the creation account is told three times in Genesis. And each of those adds to our perception and our understanding. Uh, so we're going to look for certain at two of them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. This is the very first account of the creation. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And of course you see that we have lots of plurals. God refers to himself in the plural, and God refers to us in the plural. One of the things that is happening in this passage, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, 
is that the creation account is affirming the fundament, fundamental human equality of men and of women. Both males and females are made in God's image. And so both males and females are image bearers. Both are essential to God's plan. Look down to Genesis 1 and verse number 28. And God blessed them, and God sent unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And, and the word replenish there doesn't imply an empty earth, or a once populated earth. It implies an empty earth that needs to be filled. That's the, that's the point. Replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So this is this is part of the creation mandate that is given to the male and female image bearers. That is a res, a reflection of their fundamental human equality. Both of us are essential to God's plan. And if you would briefly <clears throat> go all the way to the last book of the Old Testament to Malachi chapter 2. And I want to touch on, on something that is um, questioned by, by occasionally some really good people. Right? The biblical account is that God made Adam and Eve. And there are no shortage of people who profess to believe the Bible who argue that it can't have been that simple that Adam and Eve must in some way be representatives of a larger body of initially created human beings. Um, Some people go so far as to question whether Adam and Eve were really individuals um, or just representations of a human race that God created. And of course, part of that dilemma, folks, comes from the fact that it is just inescapable that the earth was populated in large part in the early part of its existence through incestuous relationships, right? The age-old question, where did Cain get his wife? Where did these people come from? But, but the Bible is nevertheless pretty clear that Adam and Eve were the two original human beings and that all humanity sprang from them. And in Genesis chapter 2, God, or Malachi chapter 2, God actually raises that as part of the conundrum. Okay? And if you go to verse number 11, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on this, but right. so when we get to Malachi, we've, we've been through the centuries of rebellion, and, and the Assyrians take away the northern kingdom, and it's gone, and the Babylonians have conquered the southern tribes, and they have lived in exile, and they've been allowed to return. And you would think, right, because we tend to think that if you just really put your thumb upon people, that you're eventually going to persuade them of their need to repent. But this has not happened to Israel, and they are basically as sullen and as unhappy with God and as disobedient as they were at the outset. 
Judah, verse 11, hath dwelt treacherously, and abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done, done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receive it with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Why will God not take my offering, though I bring it with tears? Because the Lord hath been witness, verse 14, between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Did he not make one? Did he not make one? Adam and Eve were one. Did he not make one? There's one question. Yet had he the residue of the Spirit... Did God exhaust himself with the creation of one? No. Wherefore one? Why did he make Adam and Eve one? That he might seek a godly seed. Now we'll get to this folks. We're going we're to talk about this. But fundamental to go back to Genesis... Fundamental to the creation of the man and the woman is the having of children. Now, not all married couples can have children, but it is God's general plan for men and women to get married and to have children. This is, this is why he made Adam and Eve. This is one of the reasons why he did not begin with multiple copies of Adam and Eve. Because he knew what he was doing and he knew what his plan was. That the remainder of humanity would come about through the normal, natural process, certainly with God's direct intervention of husbands and wives conceiving and bringing forth children into the world. Husbands and wives are equally image bearers. Husbands and wives are equally human beings. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12, Paul writes, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman. <clears throat> right? That should be obvious. No matter what, what we might think about the patriarchy, there would be no patriarchy if there were no women. Neither the woman without the man. No matter what we might think about the patriarchy, if there were not men, there would be no children. In the Lord, for as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. And so there is a fundamental human equality to men and women. Both of us, both genders, male and female, have an equal value and an equal worth to God. And I realize that that doesn't always play out as appearing to be so in every culture, but we're not talking about culture, we're talking about creation. And men and women are fundamentally human and they are fundamentally equal before God. <clears throat> Look, if you will, at Galatians chapter 3. This fundamental human equality is stated not only in the creation mandate but it is stated as a New Testament precept. Galatians chapter 3. 
Oh, what have I done here? Oh, I'm sorry. I got the right chapter wrong. Wrong verses. Beginning in verse number 24. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And of course, you know that in the book of Galatians, the relationship to the law is the whole thing that Paul is undertaking there. So verse number 26, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So our relationship to God is by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. We know that. Verse number 27, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And you notice the general terms that Paul uses here. Okay, The law was our schoolmaster, who? Men and women. And it brings us, who? Men and women. And not just within Paul's rule, see that, not just, not just the two genders that Paul has in mind. Okay, So all of us, with reference to our gender, men and women, Uh, With reference to our social status, slave or free, with reference to our giftedness, with reference to our intellect, we're all in the same position. We are brought into a right relationship with Jesus Christ by faith in him, not by any works that we can do. And so verse number 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Fundamental human equality. And with reference to our salvation, we're all on the same plane. Whether you're a Jew with all the blessings that came to the Jews or a Gentile whether you're a master or a servant, whether you're a man or a woman. We are oriented to God through Christ, and we belong to him through Christ, and we have then this fundamental human equality. This is also repeated in Acts, similar sentiment is repeated in Acts chapter 2. I will not have you turn to it. Verses 14, 18. So there's the first to go back to Genesis. There is the first creation account. And in that first creation account, folks, we are described as having been created male and female, equally in the image of God, each equally important with reference to his plan. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 20. Here is the second account of our creation. Genesis 2.20. And Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in help meat for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, 
because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The second creation account speaks to our difference in function. Men and women are equal in their humanity. Men need to be saved, and they will be saved by the same person and on the same grounds as anybody else. Women need to be saved, and they, they can be saved and will be saved by the same person and on the same grounds. And to that, from that perspective, folks, and to that intent, there really isn't male or female, and there really isn't Jew or Gentile, and there really isn't bond nor free, and there really isn't rich or poor, because we all need the same Savior, and we all get to him the same way, and he is willing to save all that come. Fundamental equal humanity. But in the second creation account, folks, is the preview of our differences in function. And this is where one of the big battle lines is being drawn in the church today. Is whether or not we continue to differ in function. If you will, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And I'm just going to jump in in verse number 7. First Corinthians eleven seven. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. Right. So here's here's some symbolism, and and some of you are probably more cognizant than others that this has been a a source of debate all in and of itself. Should should men pray covered or uncovered? Should women pray covered or uncovered? And if women should pray covered, which many teach, should that covering be something secondary to her hair? And again, this is greatly debated. It's not my intention to get into that debate this morning. You can look around the room and you can kind of know what I would teach on this. Okay? For indeed, a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image of glory in God. But the woman is the glory of the man. Why is that? Because verse number 8, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. That takes us right back to our second creation account we were created fundamentally equal as human beings but we were created fundamentally different with regards to function we were not designed to operate in the same way we were not designed to operate 
with reference to each other in the same way. And this is a distinction, folks, that is anchored in our creation. Paul will go back to the same argument in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he points out that the man was created first. In other words, right? We could, we could, we could raise this question or we could make this observation, right? God created us, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Male and female, he, could, he created us. And from our perspective, that could have been the end of the story. That, that God is my creator, and, and I am obviously and evidently a man, and ladies are obviously and evidently women, and we are both made by the same God, and we each have our purpose when it comes to, to marriage and to childbearing, and that's the end of the conversation. But God doesn't end the conversation there. God comes back and explains to us the sequence in which he operated, which was to have Adam name the entirety of the creation. At the end of the entirety of the creation, this is not lost, I mean, this is not a surprise to God, but Adam discovers that he is all alone in the creation. That there is, no, there is no match for him in the creation. And so God puts him to sleep, takes a rib, turns the rib into a woman, and presents her to him. And when we get into the New Testament, the New Testament is making the argument that that is not just simply a factual rendition but that it is actually a theologically loaded rendition that is designed to magnify the fact that we function differently to the Lord. So the man was created first. Specific point. The woman was created out of the man. Specific point. The woman was created for the man, specific point. Now at this point in time, let me ask you to turn back again to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to make this argument, folks. I'm going to make this argument going forward when our bodies are renewed and our sin nature is eradicated and we live in the kingdom we will live in the kingdom as males and females we will still be fundamentally equal in our essence in our basic humanity and fundamentally different in our function and we will never fight about it again If Adam and Eve had not sinned in the Garden of Eden, folks, those fundamental differences in their function would have existed for as long as they existed without being a point of controversy. Never one time would Adam had risen up and puffed himself up against his wife and said, I'm in charge around here. But never one time would Eve have turned her back on him and said, this is not right that I have this role that has been assigned me. 
Folks, that is the product of sin, not creation. Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 16. Unto the woman, right? Now we've got Adam and Eve and Satan and sin in the garden. And now the Lord is rendering verdicts. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So it isn't just, folks, it isn't just the increase and the multiplication of pain and sorrow in giving birth. It is a keen awareness of the differences in function. And it will reside potentially in the bosom of every woman to not like it. And it will be the sinful ambition and desire of every woman to elevate herself to a place of equality with mankind. Sin, not creation. Eve would have never given it a thought. She would have never crossed her mind to say, I'm not being treated fairly. Just wasn't a part of her identity, but it was part of her creation. It was sin that put the sharp point to that. Sin plays a major role in understanding not the division Not the division of function, but the divisiveness that exists between the function. That anything a man can do, a woman can do just as well, if not better. Which, by the way, right? I'm not even getting into the big equality debate, but it is not possible. Because women can do something that no man can do, and that is give birth to a child. Now, I realize that we've got some lunatics floating around out there who are arguing for male pregnancy, but, right? Let's just, let's just leave them in the world to which they belong, right? I mean, I'm not going to come to the pulpit and have a lengthy conversation with you about the existence of Martians or unicorns. I know there are people who believe in both, but there's not enough biblical reality to it to make it a point of biblical discussion. And I know there are people now who are arguing that men can somehow conceive and give birth. But they can't. Okay? And there's no, not enough biblical reality to make it worthy of our consideration. So to this point in human history, just saw an article this morning that the population of the world is now 8 billion. 4 billion of you can give birth to a child. 4 billion of us can't. There's no such thing as equality. That's a function. That's a function. That is something that only women can do that men can't. So, right? So anyway. So Adam, here's, so here, here are the points, folks, that the Bible emphasizes to point out to us that we were designed to function differently not just in our relationship, but in the world. They go back to our creation. Men were made first. Women were made out of men. Women were made for men. You 
in Genesis 2.23, wielding his authority and his leadership, Adam gave Eve her name. And again, within the framework of the sinless creation, this is not demeaning to her. This is not insulting to her. But Adam gave her her name. God gave Adam his name. Adam gave Eve her name. And this is one of the reasons, folks, that when Satan came and brought sin to the world, introduced sin to Adam and Eve, he spoke not to Adam but to Eve. the subversion of the core relationship and authority in the world. But this is also the reason that God laid the blame for the sin at the feet of Adam. Because Adam was first formed. He was the one who was given the function of authority and therefore responsibility. Now this division, or this, I don't want to use the word division because that's too close to divisiveness. This distinction in function, folks, occurs really in one major dimension, one major aspect of our humanity. And the Bible addresses it in two realms. In other words, when we talk about how we are different, we're, right? Pastor, what are you, what are you saying? I'm saying that Men and women, are my wife and I, are fundamentally equal in our humanity. Both created by God, both need a Savior, both have access to that Savior, both saved by the same Savior, both of our prayers are heard by that Savior, that Savior is interested equally in both of our lives. We have the reception of his blessing and his admonitions. Equally, we are human beings. We are not the same in function. And the major distinction in our function is this. Women may never be the boss of their man. Women may never be the boss of their man. And the Bible develops that in two places. It talks about it specifically in two places. And of course, the first of those is the home. The husband is the head of the home. Ephesians chapter 5, you know the passage. And I'm not going to read verse number 21, but I'm just going to make the point that verse number 21 is not eroding the remainder of the chapter by arguing that there's some kind of mutual submission in which I end up submitting to my wife and she to me this never-ending cat-and-mouse game of deference. But that what verse number, having now said that, what verse number 21 is actually arguing is that everybody recognizes their place and everybody submit first of all to the Lord. Men... If you are going to submit yourself to the Lord, you are going to lead your home. Women, if you are going to submit yourself to the Lord, you are going to obey your husband. 
children, if you're going to submit, and their children are for the most part not here, but if children are going to submit themselves to the Lord, they're going to obey their parents. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. There's really not, there's really, folks, nothing theologically tricky in verse number 22. It is a command to the wife to do something with reference to her husband because she is in a right position before the Lord. It's just that simple. This does not require of her silence. It does not require of her to be a milk toast. It does not require of her to celebrate and worship everything that he does, even though he can be an idiot. It does require her to be in submission to her own husband. And why is this? Because, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this cause, here we are, right back to Genesis 2. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined in his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So that in some churches, folks, in America, the big problem is not the presence of homosexuality in the culture. It is the presence of equality in the home. Because they don't function that way. And secondly, only men are given responsibility and authority in the church. The leadership of the church is given to Men, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 12. Now again, I know right, that the great push is on these days to level this out and to take away any sting from it by trying to make the argument that the New Testament writers were addressing cultural problems but they're not rooted in culture. They're rooted in creation. That's the point that God is making. It would have been that way had there never been Satan or sin in the Garden of Eden. It would have been that way. Whatever Adam's male headship would have looked like, whatever Eve's submissive wifeliness would have looked like, That's what we would have had in the Garden of Eden going forward. That's what would have been transmitted to every one of their children by virtue of their nature because that is the way that they were created. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 12, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Why? For Adam was first formed and then Eve. We're right back to the creation account. 
or right. So again, folks, the, the notion that this is somehow demeaning to woman is something that has flowed out of, number one, sin in general. And some of that sin has, beyond any shadow of the doubt, been sin afflicted by, inflicted by men. But it is not, infl- it is, and it may be perpetuated in cultural morals, but it is different by creation, by design. So that the primary function of, of distinction, folks, the primary function or distinction, distinctiveness of function is leadership. Now, I just, I just most recently had this conversation with one of our teachers. I've had it with many of our teachers, with all of these women who have, over the course of years, been teaching high school young men. Somewhere around the age of 13 or 14, young men are going to begin, by nature, to not take kindly to being told what to do by women. They're just not. We're not built to do that. We're not built to receive that warmly. Now, this is one of those places where male leadership in the home reveals itself. Right? Here's a place for dad to point out to his teenage son, you have to do what your mother tells you to do, or some rendition of, if you think you're going to get away with talking to your mother like that, you are going to find out very quickly that that's not so. But men are not designed to take warmly to being told what to do by girls. And I love my wife to death. There's nobody in the world I'd rather be around than my wife. But the minute she begins to kind of mother me and starts to tell me what to do, I bristle. I just bristle. I don't want to be told what to do. Now, I admit, I have a fundamental problem with being told what to do by anybody. But we're not, we're not, we're not built like that. And it's, it's really not a good look, folks, right? I mean, this is a great simplification and an exaggeration. But God likes girls to have paint on their fingernails, and he likes men to have dirt under their fingernails. Masculine men, feminine women. That's what we need. So that we don't, not in our physical appearance and not in the discharge of our duties, does anybody look at us and wonder, is that a guy or a girl? Have you ever been out in public? We were, we were just out in public, and I said, was that a guy or a girl? I don't know. You should, right? you should be able to tell. Anyway, I digress. 1 Corinthians chapter, I'm not trying to make light of this, folks. I'm not trying to make funny of this, and I'm most certainly not trying to denigrate or demean women. First Corinthians 11.3, it is a distinctiveness in the realm of authority. I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ. He doesn't get to live as if he's not, as if he doesn't answer to anybody. 
The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And before you just fall all over apart that that's not right, the head of Christ is God. Because we were, we were made to imitate a relationship that already existed. And, and again, because I, I just have a couple of other points that I want to make. If you will, while you're in 1 Corinthians, just turn ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and let me just make this, I'll just make this comment. If, if you get into all the, the theological stuff and you'd like to trace that down and have a debate, right? there's an ongoing discussion about the eternal submission of the Son. How long will Jesus be in submission to the Heavenly Father? And in order to explore the answer to that question going forward, you have to answer this question. Was he in submission to the Father before the creation of the world? And in order to get some concept of that, you have to understand this, folks. He has always been the Son. He's always been the Son. He's always been equal in his essence. He is God. He has always been the Son in reference to his function. So when God created us and gave authority to Adam that he did not give to Eve, he's not being a misogynist, which is a woman hater if you don't know what that is. And he's, and he's not being a chauvinist pig. He is simply reflecting something that has existed sinlessly in eternity. A difference in function between the father and the son. And then I would just close with this, folks. Although they are banned by creation from wielding authority over a man in the home or in the church, they are nevertheless highly regarded and highly treasured within the life of the New Testament community. They are, they are fully human and full-fledged members of the Christian community. They share human equality. They receive God's Spirit, Acts chapter 2. They receive the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Women are gifted spiritually, and that's not just the lesser inferior gifts. They are gifted spiritually. When, when we read, and I'm not going to take the time because I'm, I'm already running a little bit late, but when you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you read the word man, it is almost always in every usage, everybody, not gender related in any way, just everybody. God gives the gifts of the Spirit to both men and women. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I'm happy to talk to you privately. There's much more that we will